Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Over the last number of weeks, and I'm so glad there are so many visitors here this morning. Um, There are a lot of faces that I haven't seen in a while or new faces here that uh, I know that haven't been tracking with us over the last number of weeks. Um, And I want to say welcome. I'm glad that you're here. I'm not always this serious. Sometimes I'm pretty silly, and uh, most of the time I get a lot of people chuckling, not because I said something funny, just because uh, I'm kind of ridiculous. Um, But I say this um, because I want to set up the context of where we've been uh, because that's going to frame what we're talking about today. Uh, we probably have the most visitors that we've had in a long time. And what is the pastor preaching on today is hell. Woo! <laughs> really, now, now I'm thinking of all kinds of catchy titles of what I could name my sermon and what we could really talk about today. And uh, uh, most of them are probably uh, borderline... Um, inappropriate, so I'm not going to share those. (laughs) But we've been talking about this question of what does it mean to be saved? It stemmed from our study in the book of Acts, where at the end of Acts chapter 2, it said that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And that has been our prayer, that God would reach into our community and save souls. We understand that the reason why Jesus came was to seek and save the lost. He self-described his mission as that. And then he goes on when when he commissions his disciples. He says, in the same manner that the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Therefore, we understand that our commission as the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus, is to seek and save the lost. There's an aspect of Jesus' heart for humanity that needs to encompass the way that we live. And so, naturally, that leads us to, to maybe bring some clarity to this like ultra christianese phrase of what does it mean to be saved. Our, our natural response is to, to answer that question, save from what, right? And uh, that's where we've been over the last number of weeks. We, we're talking about uh, what exactly is it that we're saved from? Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, God saves us from sin. And he saves us from our sins, right? And the power of sin in our life. Last week, I had this ultra popular topic of uh, talking about the devil (laughs) and how God saves us from the devil and how we have a real enemy that Jesus talks about quite literally, not just figuratively, like a lot of us would like to imagine him, but that there is a real enemy that is fighting for our souls, that is an enemy against the bride and the body of Christ. We read that in the text. We read that in scripture. So we talked about how Jesus delivers us from the power of the devil over to God, right? That's what Acts uh, would tell us. That's how, that's how Paul would define his ministry. If you want to go like deeper dive in this, guys, we do have a podcast and you can listen to all the things I've said about this. I'm trying to give a, a quick recap here. But uh, the most common answer to the question Uh, that I had when I asked people, well, what does Jesus save us from? And a lot of people's definition or answer to that question would be, well, he saves us from hell. That's what we're going to talk about today. But I want to be quick to highlight this this morning. 
What Jesus did on Calvary, what he did on the cross was so much more than just save us from hell. You need to understand this because a lot of modern Christianity treats the, the gift of salvation as a get out of hell free card, right? We've used that language. We've talked about it more. It's more than just escaping the punishment of sin. That is something that, that we have to, to get drilled into us as we're talking about this concept of hell this morning and what exactly it is. And as we try to unpack it, uh, when we talk about Jesus saving us from hell, we need to understand that it's more than just the punishment of sin that he saves us from. A lot of us would, uh, I, I think, agree if I made the statement, more people are concerned about escaping the punishment than the act. And Jesus didn't just die to set you free from, from the punishment of sin, but he wanted to free you from sin entirely. It's not just about making sure that we don't get, uh, that we don't get what we deserve, but it's actually rather more about living holy as well. And so while very much I believe Jesus saves us from the wrath of God in, in what we'll, we'll study here and we'll read and we'll look at scripture, I realize, guys, this is heavy stuff. This is sober stuff. But it's in here. And I want to be very clear. Uh, Jesus said a lot of things that were very hard to wrap our, our minds around. He said a lot of things that were hard for us as human beings to agree with. And then he said a lot of things that are somewhat like popular with people. You know, like love your enemy. I don't know why that's so popular with people. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he said things that, yeah, yeah, we get around him as a good moral teacher. But then he said some crazy off the wall stuff. And the reality is, if we're going to take Jesus as who he said he is, we can't just pick and choose the nice, happy parts of the things that he said. We have a, we'll, have a, we'll have an unstable foundation, we'll have an unstable worldview, and we won't be able to trust anything that he actually said. It's important that if we're going to believe Jesus, that we take him at the entirety of his word. Otherwise, we can't trust him at all. And he does say some things about judgment. He does say some things about the wrath of God, about hell, that I want us to take very seriously, friends. Not just kind of, not just like not address them because they're difficult and harsh things to talk about and they don't really jive with how they make me feel <laughs> or, or how I want to feel. I really want us to look at it from the place of scripture. And so... When I, when I talk about this, we're talking about something more than just escaping punishment. We're talking about living holy. Because uh, what Jesus did on the cross and the promise of his Holy Spirit, that, that enables us to live victorious over sin, not just escape the ramifications of it. That's something that we kind of addressed a couple weeks ago when we talked about sin and talked about how Jesus died to set us free from sin. And so if we kind of just treat it as a get-out-of-hell get free card, it minimizes all that Jesus did and wants to continue to do in your life today, okay? But that doesn't negate the fact that there is a real coming judgment on sin. And that's something that we read about again and again and again throughout this book. The overarching statement that is something that we've been tracking for the last number of weeks is we've been looking, uh, asking, or answering the question, what does it mean to be saved and what are we saved from, is uh, 
we kind of summed it up. And God's love saves us from God's wrath for God's joy. That's, a, that's a, a really kind of harsh truth maybe to wrap ourselves around as we, as we look at it through the framework of Scripture. We understand how true that actually is. In Romans 5, uh, beginning in verse 8, it says that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We're... We're going to kind of approach this idea of the Lord's wrath this morning as his judgment on sin that we will see manifest itself in what we commonly refer to as hell. And so Romans 2, 4 through 6 tells us this, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We're going to talk about that. The righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Uh, Romans goes on in the next few verses to contrast uh, the promise of eternal life with that of indignation, with wrath, with tribulation and anguish. And so this is where, this is where it gets kind of uh, heavy and kind of intense. And it, this, is, this is a truth that I feel like I can't reiterate enough. And we've talked about it for the last number of weeks. But God's love and his justice are not in opposition to one another. They don't contradict one another. We kind of often think about like we've got angry Old Testament God that's like smiting people and like, uh, and like just kind of wrathful and vengeful. And then we've got Jesus, right? And he's like peace, love, hippy-dippy, like love your enemies, right? And uh, we're like that, we kind of think of God's love in Jesus and God's wrath in the Old Testament God, but this Something that we understand is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They're not living in contradiction with one another, but in fact, it's the fact that he's just and that he's righteous and that he's promised to bring judgment against sin that defines the fact that he's good, that he can be trusted. And in the same way, uh, the fact that he's loving, that he's merciful, they go hand in hand and work together with one another. They're not in contradiction to one another. And we see them kind of meet up on the cross of Calvary, right? We, we, we see God's wrath and his love uh, kind of juxtaposed against each other, with each other, in Jesus' death on Calvary where God himself takes on the full cup of God's wrath because of his great love for mankind. What was reserved and the wrath and the judgment that was to be poured out against sin and mankind's sin, Jesus willingly, God himself, steps in our place and takes it upon himself. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 21 would tell us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him.
And so, woo, welcome to Open Door Church. <laughs> We're going to talk about hell today. And it's not happy. It's not something that, you know, I have a lot of quick little stories and, and little tidbits here to kind of make you chuckle and ease the tension. And I, I can't apologize if this is your first time here, your first time, first time visiting with us or, or hearing the message this morning. I, I don't make an apology for the content or what I'm about to say because Jesus didn't either when he said it. In fact, uh, Jesus talks um, more about hell than he does heaven in his Gospels. Ten times more than he does heaven if you actually want to break it down for each occurrence that he does. He describes it as a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth where there's outer darkness, where there's fire that burns that never goes out. He talks about the worm that never dies. He uses some pretty drastic, intense language. You see, first century Jewish, uh, Jewish kind of contemporaries of Jesus had a very strong understanding of hell. Jesus is teaching on hell. Even the authors of the New Testament teaching on hell, they all arrive at the same place of understanding that it's a place of retributive punishment for sin. It's a place of God's wrath. Not to be confused with human vengeance that when somebody wrongs you, you kind of get payback. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about God's righteous judgment on sinful humanity. Not just humanity. We talk about rightful, I, I would say that hell exists as a place of God's righteous judgment on sin. And we see him take it very seriously. I had initially written this message talking about the severity of sin and the reality of hell. And I really wanted to walk us through like a, a, a really, really kind of robust theology and doctrine of hell. And uh, I'm going to kind of share just a little bit about what the Lord started doing in me as we talk about this. But... I don't know if you guys uh, remember last week's message, but I shared some startling statistics about the devil and about the percentage of uh, born-again Christians that recognize uh, a literal devil, that believe that we have a real enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, right? We look through Scripture and um, we talked about how we do have some we have a real enemy, that the devil really does exist. He's not like a pitchfork guy like sitting on your shoulder. He's not the king and the ruler of hell or anything like that, but he is a formidable foe, someone that Scripture tells us to be alert against. And I shared some statistics that the majority of born-again Christians do not believe what Jesus said to be true about the devil. So anyway... Mind drop, right? That, that was somewhat shocking to me as I started to, to, to do that study. But can I tell you, I don't, need, I don't need to look up a Barna survey. I don't need to, to, to look up some kind of Gallup poll this morning to see how 
seriously the church takes the reality of hell. I can without hesitation tell you that the majority of the church today does not believe in hell the way Jesus talked about it. And if I'm honest, I start to ask myself this question, having a conversation with the Lord. I might have the right answers on paper. I might be able to take a test and, and maybe pass that with the, the correct theological statements. But over the last 24 hours or so, I've had to have a real kind of come to Jesus moment on what I read about in these pages and what Jesus has to say about a place called hell, <laughs> about a lake of fire, about a place of judgment on sin and ask myself, do I really believe that? Because if I did, I'm certain that my actions and my life would look a lot different than it does right now. And so while I was prepared, and you know, this message, I've had it in kind of framework for, oh, six weeks now at least. You know, it just keeps kind of growing and it keeps stretching. And, you know, I was going to talk about the reality of the devil last week and Today I was going to talk about the reality of hell, and I, I really wanted to talk about some of the cool, like, it, it, seriously, it's, hell is like a theological nerd, like, just information dump, because Jesus talks a lot about hell. There's a lot of conversations to be had. I wanted to talk about the annihilation, the, the annihilation view of hell. I wanted to talk about eternal conscious torment, which sounds weird to, like, be excited about. I'm not, but there's so many things in, in this book. There's so many scriptures that paint a picture of what hell is like. And Jesus talked a lot about it. And, and just spoiler alert, we don't have time to get in that to that day. It's all bad, okay? It's not ACDC. You know, it's not a, it's not a party. It's bad. And, and, and if, you could, if you could just hear me say one thing today, hell is bad and you don't want to go there. If that's the extent of our theology this morning, uh, that should be enough to connect with the point that I'm going to try to make here in just a moment. I really wanted to look at the, Jew, the, the Jews' kind of viewpoints in Jesus' day of what this place, hell, Gehenna, was like. Uh, you might have heard preachers talk about Gehenna, the word that Jesus used for hell as being the trash heap outside of, outside of the city in the Valley of Himnon and, and all these kind of cool things and kind of explore the history of it. And I really realized very quickly that more so than I was concerned about souls and people, I had this mentality of, man, I just want to be right. I want to have good doctrine. I don't want people who sit under the teaching of this church to have good theology and good doctrine on hell. And the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, dude, <laughs> it's not just about doctrine, but it's about destinies. It's about real souls. It's about real people. And it's one thing to be right, and I'm not saying throw doctrine out the window, obviously, don't take sound bites of that. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that this morning. But it startled me. 
I mean, it, it seriously served as a, as a, a dramatic wake-up call, quite literally for me, that I was able to do a study like this and look at the things that Jesus said, and it hadn't moved me to tears. It hadn't, it hadn't gripped me. It hadn't kept me awake. It hadn't, it hadn't actually changed anything about how I was living my day-to-day life and the conversations that I was having with people. So as I was trying to go to bed last night, like I do every Saturday night, I, I, I'm always thinking about my message for the next morning. And I was complaining to the Lord, isn't it such a grievance that people don't believe in hell? I'm going to do the best I can to convince them tomorrow morning that it's real. Tell them all about the things that Jesus said about it. Look at all the different viewpoints and then nobody will be able to walk out of there and not have good theology on this. And I used used kind of the imagery this morning in prayer. It was like Jesus gut punched me, man. Realize that's probably not theologically accurate. It's not, not helpful. But for real, I couldn't sleep. I struggled all last night just thinking about the ramifications of the things that I've been studying for the last couple of weeks. And so at some point in time, we're going to talk a little more in depth about the different viewpoints on hell and maybe break down some of Jesus' teaching. I don't know if that'll be a Sunday morning We can go get coffee. I do want to talk about it. I think it's important. Maybe we'll do it in a deeper project or something like that. I I, I don't know. But as we read about judgment, I I read some verses here to you about the wrath of God. I'm going to read some more here. And we understand it's bad. We understand it's real. And it's something that is going to happen My simple prayer for us this morning is that it would change the way that we live. My message is not targeted towards those of you. I don't know everybody in this room. You may be here this morning and you may not have professed faith in Jesus Christ. You may be here and you may may be thinking, well, this is intense. This is crazy. My goal this morning is not to scare you into heaven by talking about how bad hell is. And, And, uh, and if this is you, if you fall in that category, I still want to talk to you. Maybe not just in the context of the sermon, but I felt compelled to speak to the church this morning. To those of us that identify as believers in Jesus. Because all the occurrences that we see mentioned in hell, uh, mentioned about hell and the teaching on hell that we see in the New Testament are not targeted at unbelievers to get them to repent. It's actually speaking to people that have a concept of hell already. And it's talking to religious leaders. Jesus is teaching in parable. He's teaching to Jewish people at the time that understood what he was talking about. It wasn't just simply a scare tactic to get people saved. And that's not what I'm trying to do today. We, we sang about it this morning. I've already shared in Romans chapter 5. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And I'm not saying that he can't use the nastiness of hell to maybe initiate some of that, but that's not my goal this morning. My goal is for us as believers, if we're going to believe the things that Jesus said, there should be some urgency to our actions and the way that we live our life.
Woke up this morning. I don't know. I, I kind of wrestled and laid in bed for most of the night. <laughs> and uh, just, I don't know if you've had those like sleepless nights. But I was just kind of going back and forth with the Lord and got up a lot earlier than I do on a Sunday morning and just had to go spend some time with the Lord. And I, I wish I could say, yeah, I really fine-tuned my message. You can tell that I didn't do that this morning. Instead, what I did was I drove up to the top of Reservoir Hill. And I can't, I can't help but express, I, I wish I could put it into words. But I asked the Lord to give me his heart for Pagosa. Because I was, I was reading about this and we're going to read about it. I was, I was reading about a place of judgment. I was reading some terrible things that are in store for those that don't know Jesus. It sounds like a harsh truth. It sounds like a harsh reality. And I, I'm sitting there. It's, it's not pleasant. As I was sitting up there and just kind of looking over downtown, just recognizing there's so many people that are going to wake up this morning that don't have what I have, that don't know Jesus the way that I know him, that don't know his goodness, that aren't singing about the goodness of God today that they've seen and experienced in their life. Realizing, man, I must not really believe all this hell stuff. Be a little more serious about Maybe the work that he has for me to do. It's praying for our city. It's a wreck. My family is homesick today. They thought I was mad at them because I came home to check on them. And I'm just, the Lord was doing something in me. I, I know that Shannon tried to say hello to me this morning. He's like, man, what is wrong with Nate? He's so grumpy. I'm not friends. I'm not angry this morning. I'm not here with a, with a sign saying, turn or burn. I'm not the doom and gloom guy. But if I'm going to take the things that Jesus said as true, they need to change the way that I live. I can't go casually about my life and thinking, thinking that the things that Jesus has instructed us to do to just be good suggestions. I was recounting a story that I read in one of my favorite books, Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. If you've not read that book and you're in this church, come to me. I will buy you a copy. It's the best book on prayer <laughs> and revival and just a guy I really like. But he tells the story of Charles Peace, who was a in the 1800s, he was a burglar, burglar, bur, bur, burglar, burglar. There, that's the word. Thanks, guys. Needed some help there. And murderer <laughs> in the 1800s in England. Killed a cop, then wound up getting away with that initial murder, kind of, and living a double life, and had a mistress, and wound up killing her husband, and eventually got caught and sentenced to death by hanging. I think it's like 1840-something 
or whatnot. He was a, kind of a notorious gangster. Wound up making plays and movies about him. One of the first silent films that ever came out uh, was about Charles' peace. And as interesting as his kind of life of crime and infamy was, more interesting to me was a statement that he made the very, very end of his life. As they were leading him out to the gallows, there was a minister that was um, reading, I, I guess the, the way that it goes is that the, the chaplain, that's what he is, I was reading out of this book, um, oh, what's the name of it? I didn't write it down. Um, something like the condolences of religion. <laughs> and was reading kind of haphazardly out of this book on, on the dangers in the, the, the place of hell as they were leading this man up to the gallows. And this conversation ensued between Charles Peace and the chaplain about, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that there is going to be a place of torment and a place of judgment uh, for me when I die? Because I, you, you read about heaven, and there's no way that I'm going there. And so I don't really care, but do you really believe that there's a hell that is entitled for me when I die? And the, the chaplain kind of responds with, well, well, yes, that's what they taught me in school. He goes on with this quote. I want you to put it up there. He says this, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. This is a murderer. <laughs> Twice. Self-admitted, going to his grave without any fear of God in him. And that's his reaction to the things that the chaplain was reading about what Jesus had to say about hell. That's not been my reaction. Maybe the sentiment there is there at one point in time, but can I tell you, what you believe is defined by what you do. It's not defined by the words in your mouth and the quiz that you take or the box that you check in the census. The way that you believe will always manifest in the way that you live. So we talk about faith and works and how it's by faith that we're saved, not by works that we could boast. But again and again and again, we see that the works follow the belief. The works follow the faith. Jesus. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. So this is like the very last pages of your Bible here. For me, it is the last page. Depends on how big of a print you have, but I want to read some of this. This is what 
This is what scripture has to say about a coming righteous judgment against sin. This isn't... Beginning in verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Something very clear that you need to understand about hell. Hell was not designed for humanity. God did not create hell for people, for him to send people there. And I'd have the, the, the strong argument in case that God actually doesn't send people there. He allows them to choose that. And, and we would talk about that. And that, that's part of what I was going to preach on when we were preaching on hell today. But we'll get to it some point in time. But I think it's important to note, friends, that the devil was created for the devil and his angels, for those that rebelled against God. And that's what we see here. But if we go on and read, we understand that sin has corrupted humanity. It goes on, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, whether their name was written in the book of life or not. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We either believe this book or we don't. And it says here, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We go on and it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. This is good news, friends. This is, I believe the goodness of God is better than how bad hell is. (laughs) I believe that the promise of eternal life with him is a better motivator than the nastiness of hell. But the reality of it is, it doesn't seem to be a strong enough motivator for most of us to actually engage in the act of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. 
He goes on in verse 5, he says, Then who sat on, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. This is good. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Oh, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's good news in what we just read. We see a promise of God saving his people. We see a promise of God in being with man. But we see even in his goodness, in his mercy, in his long-suffering, in his patience. Scripture would also tell us that uh, God isn't slow in fulfilling his promise, but that he's patient because he desires that all men would come to repentance. His desire is that no one would taste this second death. That's the heartbeat of a loving father. And he made every way possible in sending his own son to drink of his wrath for us so we wouldn't have to take part in this second death. This lake of fire that was created, that was reserved for the devil and his angels and for the false prophet and the beast. But because God is just, He upholds what he said that he was going to do. It breaks his heart. You guys have probably heard me say this before, that I think true conversion would exist even without the fear of hell. Let's take hell off the table. Let's pretend like it doesn't exist. I believe Jesus is so good that his message is so promising and that his hand is so strong that I would still want to serve him for all that he's done in my life. I don't serve Jesus just because I'm afraid to go to hell. I serve Jesus because he's good and he showed me that he's faithful. He showed me that he's true. He's upheld every promise that he's ever made to me. He's given me a family. He's given me a hope. He's given me a future. He does promise me eternity with him, but that's not my motivation for serving him, that and that alone. My motivation for serving him is that he's worthy and that he's deserving and that he's good. 
And I found one in whom there are words of life. And I can say, there's nowhere else I can go. But this same one that has promised everything to be true, he talks about, he gives a parable of a great wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. Talks about the kingdom of heaven as being like this grand feast. He sends out invitations for people to come. Some have to tend to their farm. Some have to tend to their business. And others, they actually invited the, uh, the, the messengers. They had them killed. Jesus is talking about the Jewish people here. And then he says, well, the king says, uh, go invite any that you can find and fill the banquet hall with good and bad people alike. We'll have a celebration. It's this idea that, that the gospel is open to everyone, that God has extended his invitation to everyone, all different types of people, even though that the Jews had initially rejected the promise of God. And right, we see the banquet hall filled with guests, but there's still a guy that winds up showing in, showing up. He doesn't have the, white, the, the right wedding garments on. It says, the king comes by and says, friend, how is it that you got in here? without the right wedding garments. And there's this kind of this disturbing, almost intense, like we read it and be like, whoa, that's, that's kind of a little intense for not wearing the right like, shirt or something like that. We had this celebration for Riley um, for her graduation, which we're so, congratulations. Uh, she graduated this last week and we had this fancy shindig. And she told us that we were dressing up, but you know, Pagosa dress up is kind of like, do I wear like pants or shorts or do I wear like, do I have to put on a collared shirt or am I like wearing a suit and tie? And uh, thankfully, most of us got the memo that we were wearing the suit and tie and we, we kind of we showed up and we celebrated. And but there was uh, there was one person in particular and I love you, Adam, but I'm going to throw you under the bus. You had a flannel <laughs> and some nice jeans. You looked nice, but it wasn't like fancy, fancy. That would have been like. This story would have been like Riley coming up to you. It's like, how did you get in here without the right clothes on? <laughs> Tie him up. Throw him outside where there's weeping and gnashing and teeth into the outer darkness. I'm using this kind of as a, as a story. But in Matthew chapter 22, this is, this is what happens, right? There's this wedding celebration. There's this feast. There's this party that's going on. It's this extravagant affair. And this guy shows up, right? He doesn't have on the right garments. And the host, the king, comes up and says, how did you get in here? The wearing what you're wearing. And he commands his servants to bind him hand and foot, to cast him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about Gehenna here. It's the same place that Jesus would reference every other time he talked about hell. And it was something that was referenced amongst first century Jews that they understood and they knew that it was talking about a place of punishment for sin. We can have a long conversation about that where I'll actually preach the message that I wrote. We'll get coffee. It's good. Don't break my computer, Nate. Uh. <laughs> but the beauty of that story to me is first and foremost that Jesus invites us to a feast. What you're invited to with life in Christ is not a life of restriction. It's not a life of things that you can and can't do. It's a beautiful picture of celebration and he invites any and all alike both good and bad it said the banquet hall was filled with guests 
But did you know there was one requirement in order to be a part of that celebration? Was that you had to wear the garment that the king provided. And I, I taught about this, and I don't have time to go into all the historical details here, but a celebration like this, there would have been a wedding garment that was provided for each and every guest. But homeboy shows up unwilling to change. And because he was unwilling to change, he didn't get to enjoy in the celebration. And there was punishment withheld for him. And our modern philosophy and the way that we so like to do life would like to tell you, you can come to Jesus and stay exactly the same way that you are. You don't have to change a thing about you. If that was the case, why go to the cross? If that was the case, if, if there wasn't something to be saved from, why did Jesus die such a drastic death? And we live in this watered-down version of Christianity where it's a come-as-you-are, stay-as-you-are kind of Jesus, and that's not who he is. That's not what he desires for your life. He invites you into a great celebration. He invites you into a great place of joy. And he's done everything in his power in providing the garments for you to change into. Don't let it be like what we read in Romans chapter 5 today. Don't despise the goodness of God that leads to repentance. According to your hard and unrepentant heart, don't treasure up for yourself wrath because you don't want to change. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.